All right. This is the Yay with Reg Clay, normally with Norman G as well, but he is uh, at work right now. But I have a wonderful guest, the artistic director of Theater Rhinoceros, John Fisher. John, how are you doing? Good, Reg. Thanks for having me on the program. Absolutely. My, it's been a couple of years. You directed me. I remember we did... Um, it was 100 years of queer theater, That's right. and it was uh, the dangerous precaution. I remember That's right. That. <laughs> and uh, you were a singer, so you had to be in the show. Oh yeah. And you yeah. were, in, you know, period dress and uh, dancing, and uh, it was just uh, silly as anything. And that was a, um, the piece was historic because I think it was the first ever gay piece yeah. that was ever written yeah. or published. Well, and it had never been performed before um, mm-hmm. it, it, until that production. And uh, it was found by an academic back east at Tufts, and we asked him permission. He said, yeah. And we wrote music for the songs, and uh, yeah, it was the first ever sort of openly gay portrayal of uh, that lifestyle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we gave it its premiere. Now that's fantastic. Yeah. And that was, I'm trying to think, I think it was, I see the, no, I don't have the poster there. But it was around, I think, 2006, 2005. That's right. Like that. yeah. 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 That sounds right. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, theater, and it's fitting that it happened in Theater Rhinoceros, which is uh, legendary. It is the, as a matter of fact, it, there's a Wikipedia page. I'm sure you know that already. Uh, theater Rhinoceros. Gay Lesbian Theater based in San Francisco. And uh, it is the, the longest running queer theater in the world. That's right. Yeah, that is just fantastic. Yeah, how did you get involved with a theater on Osiris? Um, I did a couple plays there under the previous artistic director Doug, Doug Holsclaw, and then he stepped down, and the board of directors asked me to take over, and I was like, I was thrilled to. I mean, I think it's uh, great. Uh, somebody needed to keep it going, and um, I had sort of vision of what we should be doing, and it's been a wonderful place. It's a great place for a playwright, a director to have a home. Yeah, because exactly. um, it just makes life easier, and um, it's very hard to put on theater in this world. And so, having that home has been wonderful. Yeah, and it's been going on, I believe, since the seventies, right? Nineteen seventy-seven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That is just amazing. And you know, Norman and I, we've been talking about how a lot of theater companies now—it's so hard, especially now with uh, gentrification and with uh, rents going higher—to hold on to a home. Yep. A lot of companies just die out. Yeah. How is it, because Theater Rhinoceros, they've gone through several administrations. I mean, Ford, Carter, Reagan. Right. I mean, so many. How does it just, how does it keep going strong? I mean, and how is it going right now? It's going really well. I mean, um, government support on a federal level is way down, and that happened under the Bush administration. It never quite came back. That's the problem with funding is when it goes away, it tends to stay away. Mm. Um, it doesn't usually bounce back. So we've lost a lot of federal funding. But, um We've done very well with foundation support and with individuals. I mean, individuals keep queer theater alive because mm-hmm. it means a lot to them. And I see that when I see the shows, just how much it means to them to see gay men, lesbian women on stage right. expressing their sexuality. And we were just talking today about how so much gay theater, for a long time, it'd be a story about two gay men, but you wouldn't see them kiss or touch. There was no, like, you know. Sure. But you go see a play about um, a man and a woman having a relationship. There's a lot of affection. And so I think it's very important that, you know, we sort of put this out there. And you go see a movie. And, all, and again, I think people are still nervous about watching gay sexuality. Um, they'll watch two men be in love with each other and 
build a life together. But when it comes down to like you know what makes us different, sex, audiences still get nervous, and so it's always been very important to us to you know show the romance of it, the sexuality of it, and not just the sort of digestible sides sure. of the relationships. Does that shock you? I mean, in 2017, you think that, I mean, in the age, you know, Ellen has come out and uh, there's a lot more acceptability yeah, sure. for yeah. gay and lesbianism, but it still is a bit filtered, I guess. Oh, yeah. No, and it's, it, and it, and it's cyclical and things change. And, you know, we were just uh, in Israel, uh, my husband and I, and it was amazing. We went to a queer uh, a gay pride march in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. It's something like our, our, our marches are like they're floats and there's tons of music and there's there's a float for for like a bar, a right. famous bar, and yeah. there's a float for Kaiser Permanente and all its gay employees and there's a float for Theodore Rhinoceros. But they don't – in Jerusalem, they still have protest marches. They're mm. protesting for acceptance. Wow, yeah. And there's no music. It's, it's just like – 22,000 people marching down the middle of the street, yeah. screaming for justice. And two years ago at their Pride March, a young lesbian got killed. Yeah. An Orthodox guy killed her and stabbed four other people. And so it's, it's amazing that in so much of the world, there's still this battle for acceptance. And I think even in our country, when you get away from places like San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles, that's right, that's right. it's still – people are still struggling to – I mean, I think they get accepted – you know, their neighbors know them and love them, but they can't be open about it. Right. They can't – and, you know, we were in Jordan, and they, you know, the guidebook said don't, you know, no, don't, don't, don't kiss each other. Don't, don't – people shouldn't know that you're gay. And it's interesting because, of course, it's legal there, but mm -hmm. legality doesn't necessarily mean acceptance. So I think – I think the battles still need to be fought, and yeah. that's what queer theater is all about. Um, I mean, even recently I was reading uh, this week – that um, there was a, uh, I think, two men, and they were kissing or being affectionate, and a waitress, this is here in the United States, yeah. said, hey, you, you can't do that, or that's not acceptable, or whatever. And unfortunately, they didn't say anything right then and there. Mm -hmm. They later wrote back and said, hey, you know, we, we're really offended by this, or what have you. It's, it's shocking that it it's It is shocking, and, it's, and, and, and that's a great story, because it's hard. You know, when you're suddenly confronted with prejudice, your reaction, we're not conditioned to be like, shut up. Leave, leave us alone. Or, right. you know, it's, we're like, uh, 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 you know, then later we write letters, but it's sort of like, we're not, it's just like, we're, we're supposed to live in this open society right. and we're still confronted with this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, somebody like famous, like Armistead Maupin, whenever something like that happens to him, he just immediately starts screaming and calling for the police. Mm -hmm. But most of us, I think, are just so taken aback. That's why it was so great to be to get back to what the pride marches used to be about, which was like protest for acceptance. That's what we saw in Jerusalem. Right. People fighting for acceptance, demanding it. And um, and I think, you know, there's a certain complacency in our community. But as you say, still in the United States, there are still people who, <coughs> they need to be educated. You need to say to them, look, you know, you can't, you can't do that. You can't tell us to stop doing something. That's not acceptable. And hopefully... They'll hear you, or it'll lead to something other than an argument, but mm -hmm. maybe not. Maybe there's violence. I don't know. Right. But I think it has to be confronted at the source, and uh, we just have to realize that you know, acceptance in our country, it's, it's not there yet. It hasn't happened. Yeah, yeah. It's, and you would think with, um, with Obama accepting, of course, he had to be sort of dragged by, uh, you know, Biden was the first one to, to uh, say, hey, we need to accept gay and lesbians, yeah. um, you know, as – as people, you know, just as everyone else. Yes. And, you know, Obama came came in a little bit later on. 
Um, well, Obama was the best president ever. I mean, in yeah. my life, I just – I grew up – the first president I was aware of was Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. And I, every single one after that, including Clinton, I just thought, these, I don't trust these people. They make all these promises. Mm-hmm. And, then, and Obama, you know, he moved slow, but he got – I mean, he, he got rid of – Defensive Marriage Act. He got gays in the military. Mm-hmm. He, he got marriage. I mean, these are profound, complicated things that Clinton had promised when he ran mm-hmm. and didn't deliver. Right. And Obama, it was slow. Everybody's so frustrated with him. But it happened. Mm-hmm. It happened. Right. And for me, that was the best eight years of presidency. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was completely enamored. And I yeah. used to say that. And even liberals would say, oh, my God, he's so slow. And, uh, you know, and I was like, come on. You know? Yeah, I've had a couple of progressives. Um, I'll call them progressives or Bernie folks who have, yeah. who have come on. And they're still very good friends. And I totally understand where they're coming from. But you have to understand politics. I mean, uh, if you try to rush things to right, it reminds me, as a matter of fact, the gay lesbian movement reminds me so much of the civil rights movement yep. of the 60s, where King not only had to appeal to his people, but he also had to play politics and to appease, not appease, but to deal with the Kennedy administration. Yep. John F. Kennedy was very slow to accept civil yeah. rights. He had to be dragged and screamed by Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. And uh, it's by working with the politicians and also catering to your people that you can have something like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Obama was a politician, and not in the in the worst sense of the word, the way we think of politicians now, which mm-hmm. is that they're devious and they don't care. He was a politician in the best sense. Right. He was a, he was a statesman, and he was he had a vision, and sometimes the vision got expanded. I mm-hmm. think you're right about his his growing awareness of right. the queer movement. Right. But once once you became a part of that vision, I really do think he delivered. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, a lot of things, as I say, that were promised by Clinton: uh, universal health care. Yeah. Uh, Queer rights, expansion of queer rights, mm-hmm. and it was so frustrating to live through the Clinton administration. It was a complete opposite for me with the Obama administration, and I just couldn't, I couldn't tolerate conversations with liberals about, oh, no, he's so slow. And uh, I was like, well, I see accomplishment, and he means a lot to me, and I'm, I'm an issues voter. I vote for myself, and right. I would have voted. My, you know, he should be like Roosevelt. He should have had three terms. He should have been <laughs> office for twelve years. I mean, it's just, sure, why not? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I just think uh, he was a real. He was a real visionary, and he mm-hmm. really understood how it worked. And it was surprising for somebody so young and so inexperienced in politics. He had not been an office holder for yeah. so much of his life like so yeah. many other people. Well, that may have been an advantage. Sometimes it, it takes youth and you know a, a sort of a newer way of looking yeah. at things and just um, not to not be jaded. And it may have been the problem with Hillary Clinton. It may be the reason. Did it shock you, this election, uh, that – Oh, of course. I mean, like everybody. I think, I think the thing that was most upsetting about it was – being misled, I felt, by the media into a form of complacency. Oh, I, sure. I really felt, and it's weird, it's, it's the one place I do agree with our awful president. I actually agree with him. The media is screwing up. And I felt completely deceived by them with regards to Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Like, this is like Are you 90, talking about like the polls? Yes. Oh, don't worry about it. You know, not, 92% chance she's going to, it's like wrong. This is wrong. Yeah. It was appalling. And um, I think she had a lot of problems. I, um, Obviously, she was not – I don't think in retrospect she was a strong candidate. I won't say that I realized that at the time, but I did feel like she wasn't working quite hard enough. No. And uh, I hated Bernie Saunders for pulling energy away from her. But when I listened to him, really listened to him, I think he was right. She acted like she was anointed. Yeah. And yeah. I think that the, a lot of small problems that were sort of barely perceptible sort no. of added up to – 
a weak candidate <coughs> and a frustrating candidate. I think she would have been a much better president than the one we've got. Right. And I think yeah. that things would have would be going a lot better if she was president, but that didn't happen, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think the thing that shocked me so much about what's happening now, the Trump presidency, are, are that a lot, I mean, there's go- this weekend there's going to be an alt-right um, march um, or something that's happening. I think it's happening at Golden Gate Park. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, pe- and people are saying, oh, stay home, you know, let's not have any violence or whatever. But it, it shocks me that people that I thought, I really, th- I was naive in thinking that with every new generation, there will be acceptance, acceptance of... I think people who are different in, in such. Yeah, that doesn't seem to be the trend of this country. I think this country is essentially conservative. It's reflected in the Supreme Court. I mean, I think essentially the, cover, the country's conservative, and there's two steps forward and maybe two steps back. I just there just seems to be a real rollback on a lot of sort of fundamental issues. The whole transgender issue now that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Yeah, we keep doing shows about transgenders now because the acceptance is not there. Mm-hmm. And um, even Trump, when he was running, said, you know, anybody who wants to use any bathroom in Trump Tower can. I don't care. We decide all this. And now that he's president, mm-hmm. of course, his attitude is very different. So it's I, – I wish I believed in progress. I don't. I mean, as a theater person, I guess the best evidence is that we don't necessarily think the plays be written now are better than Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't really – you don't – in art, you don't see necessarily progress. You just see difference. And I think that's kind of sadly the way the country is. It's like each era, each generation, each moment is different. For a long time I said, you know, the new the, – the millennials are the best generation ever because they elected Obama. That would never – my generation would never have done that. Right. We, are, yeah. we elected Reagan. I was so – I'm so bored with my generation. Yeah. And I said, the millennials are, they're the best ever. They elected, they, they elected Obama. And now, you know, we've got this horrible president. I'm like, well, okay, you know, yeah. you know. Well, technically three million more people voted Hillary, but we know how the electorate college yeah. is. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, 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 I yeah, it's, it's, you know, how it affects queer theater, I don't know. Um, it, in a way, it's good because, Queer theater rises to challenges. The best thing that ever yep. – the best thing. Mm-hmm. A, a revitalizing thing for theater rhinoceros was AIDS. Yeah. Because the theater had, in a way, um, succeeded in, in, in reaching out and telling the stories of gay men and lesbian women. And, ex- and, and that was – representations of their lives were growing in film and things. And then AIDS hit, and it was seen as something that was going to destroy queer theater because so many queer theater artists were dying. Mm-hmm. The artistic director of Theater Rhinoceros, the managing director, um, many of the artists who worked at Theater Rhinoceros died. They just dropped. Oh, hmm. Yeah, it was devastating. Yeah. Um, the founding director, um, uh, Alan Estes, uh, dropped dead. You know, from AIDS. And so everybody thought that was the end of the theater, but it wasn't because the theater started telling AIDS stories. And nobody else was doing that. You couldn't find it in film. You couldn't find it on TV. People were scared of it. And um, uh, Theater Rhinoceros actually started putting on those stories, which revitalized the theater. Yeah. And so I think it's like writers in communist Russia. Sometimes oppression or disaster or Mm -hmm. plague excites creativity. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of Bertolt Brecht. You know, uh, he his, some of his best writings were je- at the beginning of the Third Reich. That's right. Yeah, he was he was he was a genius. He, yeah. and uh, 
he created at a time when everybody thought the world was falling apart. And then he ended up in Hollywood, and he was unhappy. <laughs> I mean, he actually ended up he actually ended up in 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 a relatively uh, open society that yeah. he could do things, and he was totally frustrated. He hated it. Yeah, Schoenberg too. He, he had to flee Germany, and mm-hmm. then he got a job, and he ended up in Hollywood. He was so happy, and he uh-huh. got a job writing for the studios, <laughs> and he was like. You don't want me to write music. You want me to write crap. Yeah. You know, and he was, you know, so everybody ended up in Hollywood in the sunshine, but they weren't as happy as they were when they were, well, I should say they weren't as creative <laughs> right. as they'd been. Yeah, sometimes you need a little bit of pressure to, yeah. to create writing. Yeah. When you mentioned um, transgendered, um, a good friend of ours, that Craig Souza, of course you know Craig Souza. I love Craig. Yeah, he's on our board of directors. Yeah, so uh, Craig Souza. Um, he had uh, a Facebook post, Give a Transgendered Veteran a Virtual Hug. And Trump and GOP enablers a virtual middle finger by making a donation to the Transgendered American Veterans Association today. Yeah. And um, he just gave $100,000. Well, I'll put this on the uh, the post if anyone wants yeah. to donate to the uh, Transgendered American Veterans Association, transveterans.org, transveteran.org. So that's a... Uh, yeah, and this whole thing about not uh, subsidizing transgender health care in the military and transgenders can't serve, it's just, it's got nothing to do with money. It's just, it's just a It's statement. just trolling. I mean, he's it's just basically just doing it to just yeah. embolden his base and just to point a finger. I mean, it's, I've never seen, I've never experienced a president that did so much to antagonize people. He, he seems to just thoroughly enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sad. Yeah, yeah. Okay, any case, let's talk about let's talk about you, your background. How did you, uh, Norman and I, we've shared about how the theater bug bit us, and um, mm-hmm. it saved me. You know, I was growing up in um, not so pleasant area in Washington D.C., and you know, theater sort of revived me. It got me into college, and uh, it's just taken me to many places. What's your story? Um, you know, I was sort of uh, an alienated youth. I didn't, I didn't fit in. I mean, I grew up in a affluent community, and um, I wasn't an athlete. Here in the Bay? Yeah, in, in Marin County, okay. Ross, Ross, California. And, um, you know, people, I wasn't abused or, you know, it was it was very patrician. Everybody was very nice to each other, but mm-hmm. I was just bored and frustrated, and there was no outlet for me, and there was no theater. There was yeah. none. And as I got older, you know... Did you have siblings? Yeah, I had two brothers, okay. an older one and a younger one, and we've all sort of been kind of misfits, but my older brother was a nerd. He was okay. a big nerd, and that was great because that means you get to be a physicist. <laughs> okay. So that works. Yeah. But if you're not like a nerd, right. you know, it's like it's it, you know, it's like nobody's going to pay you to be just like a not nerd who doesn't fit in. I mean, nerds are okay, but I wasn't a nerd. Right. Um, I didn't have the math bug. I didn't have the science bug. So I was like, you know, I, I, when, I, when I was about in the sixth grade, I was in trouble because I was just getting more and more sort of alienated from everybody. And then, um, you know, the something about seventh grade, which was a horrible year for me, is terrible. Nobody would speak to me. The teachers were all giving me bad grades. I was mm. like, and I'd always been a good student. It was weird. I didn't know what was going on with me. Yeah, I had yeah. no idea what was going on with me. I was like, I was like screwing up, and I didn't know why. And I didn't even know I was screwing up until I got got, got report cards and. Mm-hmm. My father had to talk to me. We need to talk about your report card. That never happened before. Mm. And then in seventh grade, they started putting on plays. Something about seventh grade was when the, the school actually did theater. Yeah. And um, it was like, yeah, I was just like, like you said, I, I felt kind of saved by it. I suddenly, I was around people like me. Um, I was around girls who never gave me the time of day. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I had all these like friends who were girls and we were all sort of eccentric and weird together. Mm-hmm. And, 
there were all sorts of, they're like boys who were, you know, different. They weren't necessarily gay. Some of them were, I think, but they were just like, they didn't fit in. And we all were very creative. And so seventh and eighth grade were really a rebirth for me. And then high school, I was just like a theater geek. That's all I did. I did like six shows a year. And that's all I did was I rehearsed. It was great because I felt like such a loser. I would never go out. My friends would all go mm -hmm. out at night. Mm -hmm. They'd be out at night. They'd be out on Friday and Saturday night. They'd go out. And I was like, I didn't go to dances. I didn't like go out on dates. But then when I started doing theater in high school, I went out every single night hmm. for rehearsal. Okay. Yeah. So every night was rehearsal. So like every night was a party. So yeah. finally I got this thing that I wanted. I was like, I was like happy days. I was like, you know, I was like, I, I had a more complicated, fun social life than all my friends who just got to go out on Friday and Saturday night. Uh -huh. And my parents couldn't say anything. They were like, where, where are you guys going to rehearsal? What are they going to say? No. Yeah. And um, they were supportive in that they just let it happen, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, and then we had cast parties. And we were just crazy. We were crazy. <laughs> okay. We were insane. Mm -hmm. It was this very, like, nice community, nice, no diversity. Everybody was nice to each other. And we'd go out and act crazy. Mm, mm, you know, we'd, mm -hmm. you know, we'd TP people's houses. <laughs> and we'd go yeah. to, like, a restaurant and, and make a lot of noise. And the waitress would have to tell us to shut up, like, 15 times. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we were just, like, just, like, rowdy and crazy. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like you guys were liberated. We were totally liberated. And I think yeah. we all felt it was very nice to grow up where we did because, you know, we were – protected, mm -hmm. um, but we didn't feel like the young Republicans that all of our friends were or our parents were. We felt like rebels. So ever since I've just done theater, I think if I stopped, I'd go crazy. I mean, even even now between shows, I get kind of crazy, you know? <laughs> I get kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I usually I talk with my dad, who's a, a singer, and, you know, we say, you know, it's art is the thing that keeps us alive, and it keeps us young, I yeah. think. I think so, too. I think it it really, uh, I think you, you, you develop a respect for the young. You really understand them because you, I think you keep that energy. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, think it's, I think it's good. You learn from young people. Yeah. Um, yeah. What training? Uh, when, you went, when you went to college, uh, what tra theater training did you uh, have? I had awful training. I went to UC Berkeley, and it was, uh, it was not good. Um, high school, I learned, what's this? This is like a cliche. Everything mm -hmm. I ever learned in life, I learned in high school. Uh-huh. I went to Berkeley and I studied. I studied acting for four years, and it was not good. It was all. It was very serious. Mm -hmm. It was all method training, and which is not to say that's a, that's bad. It yeah. just it was all very serious, and everything was wrong. Mm. In high school, you did stuff, and everybody loved it. Oh, oh that was great. That was great. Oh, it was great. It's great. It's great. Yeah. You know, in college, it was the opposite. It was like, well, you know, mm, mm, you didn't get there. No, you didn't. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. And the shows were so serious. It was like. <laughs> Beckett's, and it was just like everything was like uh. so serious. And then, oh, we're going to do Shakespeare, no, but not the one you want to do. It's not the Shakespeare you want to do. It's measure for measure. And it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> everything. And the, 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 the directors were all like still in the 60s. Everything was like radical. But the 60s were over. The yeah. issues were like – and it was just like – it's like – and so they have to explain to the audience what this meant in the 60s and what – and it was just – it was horrible, and yeah. it didn't kill my interest in theater, but it I – di I didn't have any fun. Mm -hmm. It was just – it was like I was really like – and my <laughs> father, you know, mm -hmm. he was like, these must be the joyful years of your life. This is college. You're supposed to have fun. It's like, yeah, you're an attorney. You weren't a frat. Of course it was fun for you. The, the World War II was on. You felt like a hero. Of course it was great for you. For me, it's horrible. It's like – UC Berkeley was trying to act like a private school. It was mm. like everybody was going to Reagan. And it was like it was trying to be Harvard. And I'm like, 
this, I, I thought I was going to UC Berkeley. I thought I was going to get the radical. I thought people were going to be running around naked. Yeah, like, I know. That's, all, that's kind of shocking. Well, it was all young Republicans, mm. and it was it was horrible. Hmm. So um, Berkeley almost killed my interest in theater. Um, and then, you know, when I got out, I went to New York. I went to L.A. And I was like, I sort of rediscovered the joy of it all. And I also realized that you – Theater isn't about doing what you're not supposed to do this or do that or do this or do that. Mm -hmm. Just do what you're supposed to want to do. What I had learned how to do is how to rehearse and how to hang a light, how to paint sets, how to do a schedule, how to work with a stage manager, how to work with actors. I'd learned all those mechanics, Mm -hmm. so it was good for that. Yeah. But the art stuff was all wrong. It Mm -hmm. was all about rules and 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 it was all about rules. Mm -hmm. And so the mechanics was good. And then I learned, you know, okay, I want to tell my own stories. My own stories are queer. I was coming out of the closet, and I was like, okay, I, I, I have to take the mechanics and the fun of it and tell the stories I want to tell. And that's how I became a playwright because I couldn't find a play that told my story. Mm-hmm. The plays, the gay plays at the time were all about, you know, sex, 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 you know, going into a bathroom and having sex with people. It's like, I don't have sex in bathrooms. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, you know, it's like mm-hmm. – I. It, it, which is not to say that that's bad. I mean, yeah. you know, maybe I should have sex in bathrooms. I, you know, maybe I was jealous. I don't know. But yeah. it wasn't my story. Yeah. And then the other stories were all about AIDS. Mm-hmm. And although I was aware of AIDS and AIDS affected my life and people I knew, it, it didn't hit my generation the way it hit the generation just before me. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not saying it's not my story. Of course, it's my story because I saw people die. Right. But it, it has hit a, a group of men a little older than me, much harder than it hit me. So I sort of saw myself as, you know, the, the, the generation after AIDS. Yeah. And those are the stories I wanted to tell. And the story I wanted to tell is that sex between men is not – it's not necessarily death. Right. Which is the AIDS story. It's mm-hmm. not dangerous. I mean, my generation knew the rules mm-hmm. and obeyed them and found – the first play I wrote was called The Joy of Gay Sex – and the, the title was a political statement that gay sex is joyful. It's not, it's not something that's going to kill you. Right, I understand. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? Um, in there, when a lot of people think, at least when I see on television or how gay and lesbian relationships are displayed, the focus is, appears to be sex the act. Yeah. Uh, this is what they do and all, you know, whatever. Right. Instead of sex and identity. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting the last couple of years, I don't know if it's because of the internet or whatever, there's been this talk about identity. Like, you hear statements like metrosexual and cisgendered and, and that sort of stuff. Does it shock you? I mean, I know this is outside of the theater or whatever. Does it shock you that labels are sort of being p- thrown away or there are new, there are new categories of yeah. sexual identity? Um, it's hard to keep up with the terminology, and I try not to be a cranky old guy and say, oh, I'm so sick of that. <laughs> yeah. Because I hear a lot of that. And, yeah. you know, of course, we're all, oh, so PC. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like, it's, who cares? I mean, it's, uh, we just did a, a musical, and we referred to the characters as trannies, and everybody was upset. And I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't get the memo. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the memo. I'll start calling them trannies. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I was generally apologetic. I don't want to offend anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's good. I think it's good that um, that that people now can identify as, as being um, transgender without being queer. Men can wear dresses and not necessarily have to be gay. 
people can, you know, these sort of sumptuary laws are breaking down and mm-hmm. you don't have to be uh, a screaming queen to, to like to put on women's clothing. And mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure I understand all the terms and know what they mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I think if they make people feel comfortable, I don't I, – you know, I, my generation was like – um, you know, outing people. You're gay. You're gay. Sure. And I'm yeah. like, uh, it's like, <laughs> you know, what is this about? So, so that, that's like, that's like Nazi Germany and yeah. saying you're a Jew. I mean, it's like, a, you well, know. it's like the Salem witch hunts. It's almost, yeah, it's a, you like, know, like, yeah. Just because I'm gay doesn't mean I have to identify. I mean, it's like, you know, people say Tom Cruise is gay. It's like, well, if he doesn't want to be gay, then he doesn't have to be gay. I mean, if he doesn't, if he's going to treat it like a dirty word, I don't want him to have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't get the outing thing. Like, we're going to out you because you're one of us and you're not mm-hmm. going up to it. And I think that, I think the good thing about all these terms is that people can define themselves much more specifically than maybe they ever were able to. Um, yeah. I, and I think it may be, maybe the newer generation is figuring out their their own sexuality yeah. as far as identity and as far as what they want to do. And of course that changes, you know, like the way you were in 20 is different from what you, what you're into, let's say when you're 30 or whatever. And in the age of Twitter, Facebook or whatever, yeah. and people have hashtags or what have you. I think this is their way of labeling it, identifying it, communicating yeah. what they like. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wrote a play, uh, Medea the Musical, about a gay, about a, a gay guy who discovers he's straight. Hmm. And, I mean, it's like a radical proposition, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it sounds like you're saying that, you know, it's like you're, you're playing into the, into the camp of the uh, fundamentalists who say, well, you're all really just straight. You just need to be reconditioned. But I was just saying, no, you know, I think if we're going to say mm-hmm. that – Sexuality is fluid. We have to admit that it can it can go back the other way without being some sort of political betrayal. Right. I don't think anybody even really noticed because it was like a musical and it was all just like fun and people running around dancing. Mm-hmm. But I was like, well, I'm, no, I'm saying that a gay guy can be straight. Yeah. Just and, and just, not be ostracized by let's say a gay person to say, hey, you've got to be because you've exactly. got to be part of the movement and this and, and that. So that's yeah. what all the other characters were saying. It's like you can't do this. And he's like, well, I'm doing it. And mm-hmm. um, and yeah. And so I think that. I think we have to own up to the genuine fluidity of identity, as you say, even within a single life. It's not like, you know, when you're 20, you say, I'm straight, and, you know, you're straight the rest of your life. I mean, obviously, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, a lot of straight men become gay at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And they say, they say, well, I always thought knew I was gay. And I sort of think, well, but you had three kids. <laughs> right. You know, I'm sort of like, yeah. uh, did you know you were gay? I mean, I. I just wonder, I mean, how we rationalize things yeah, and how language is sort of, sort of so overwhelming. And mm-hmm. it's like uh, – And also some of the trade-offs that we make for another partner. Let's say you hook up with someone because they want you yeah. and they expect you to be placed into this box or whatever or not necessarily because of enforcing, you know, this is what you have to be. But I want you to be this because that you mean so much to me in my life or what have you. Yeah. I mean there's all sorts of marriages – that are convenient until yeah. it becomes inconvenient, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, Michael and I have been together forever, and I think we're just toge- together because we How love many each years? other. How many years? 30 years. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> and, but we don't have kids. I think that's the key to success in marriage. We don't have any kids. I mean, there's like, we don't own anything. We don't own a house. It's just like, it's just like you know, there's, like, there's, there's, there's no reason to stay together, so we stay together. <laughs> you know, it's like my parents didn't even approve. That, mm-hmm. that helped a lot, too. It's like, it's like, good, I found the right person. You don't approve. <laughs> I just think there's something sort of very um, clean about queer marriage. 
um, because it's not you don't get social affirmation for it. You don't, you know, you know my parents, I, I'm convinced, stayed together because they had a bunch of kids. I mean, they hated each other. They hated each other. Mm. It's like, you know, but they had this whole, you know, depression era mentality of like, well, we're married. Yeah. You know, we're stuck. Mm. Um, my father said he tried to leave my mother a couple of times, but it was so so depressing to hang out with other divorced <laughs> men. It's just so depressing. <laughs> it's so depressing. Just out of curiosity, what type of a lawyer was he? Just because I work in a law office. Uh, he was, uh, he was, uh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a paralegal. <laughs> oh, okay. For criminal law. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he was a um, he was an insurance attorney. Ah, uh, okay. He uh, represented Fireman's Fund, and um, so a plane would crash. Uh huh. Everybody on it would die, hmm. and my father would go into court and argue for his insurance company how th- why they should not have to pay. It should be the other insurance company. <laughs> it's like no, no, no. The plane the plane was at flaw, not the pilot. <laughs> so, so the. The, the insurance company for Boeing should pay for all these dead bodies. Not, and, you know, this is like he was he was you know he was he was a classic uh, mm-hmm. uh, evil attorney. I mean, he made mm-hmm. his money off of off of insurance. Wow. But, you know, I thought you know, in the middle of the seventies, there was a Time a Time magazine that said, "Are there too many attorneys in the U.S.?" That was it was just <laughs> like, and now you know, yeah. uh, nobody asks that question anymore. But there was a huge proliferation of the legal profession. In the 70s, and I grew up around attorneys, and I was like, oh, my God, is this, is this what you do all day? You know? Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, a child is told by their parents, hey, if you want to make money, you know, don't, don't, oh. go, don't get in the theater. Don't go in liberal arts. Yeah. You know, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be blah, 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 Well, blah, blah. I think, as I said, I think they were so – I think they felt for me. I mean, they were like – I mean, he got, he got being an attorney down to going to cocktail parties. He was a great partier. Mm. He was all about he, – he was a member of every club mm-hmm. you ever heard of. And he just he just got being an attorney down to schmoozing, mm. and uh, and he just I think they I, just I see some similarities between you and him. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> yeah, but I'm a teetotaler. I can't. Um, but he he um, and I, I think that they realized that I wasn't that way. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't play tennis. I didn't go yachting. I wasn't into hanging out with my peers. I think they were worried about me. Hmm. So when theater happened, they never said to me, "Don't do this. You won't make any money." I think they. I think later when I was asking for checks, they wish they had. <laughs> but, um, but he. Um, they never said that because I think they were happy to see me like enjoying myself. Mm. I think. I think if they, it, they didn't really notice me much. But when they did notice me, I think they felt bad that I wasn't a happier kid. Mm-hmm. And so when I started doing plays they were my biggest fans oh good they would come they would come and see the most all those college plays those horrible college plays they go oh you were great oh my god oh it was wonderful those costumes and that set and you know they are so positive and they saw every single damn thing i saw because mm-hmm. they i think they were happy seeing me happy mm-hmm. and um and you know, my mother used to bring me flowers and save all my programs, and so that was good. I mm-hmm. mean, they were they were not perfect parents, but they 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 kind of hit the they, they they hit the necessary bases. Yeah. And um, how did they? How how and, and this is a third rail. We can move on to something yeah. else. But how did they accept you when you came out? Oh, horrible! This terrible, terrible, terrible. They're very intelligent people, but they were they were sort of guided by you know what their friends thought, sure. you know, and so they were just nervous as hell that their friends would find out. They were awful, awful, awful. I think what turned them around is my, my husband got cancer, a curable form of cancer, but we didn't know that at the time. 
he got cancer when we were about 30, mm. when we were both about 30. And um, I think my parents realized when that happened how much I loved him. Mm. And then they kind of turned into heroes. They kind of stopped with all this not 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 speaking to him mm. and never having anything nice to say about me being gay. Yeah. I think they saw that, and, and, and they, they changed. They changed in a big way and, and accepted him and became very kind to him and close to him. And I, I personally, I thought he should have just told him to fuck off and, mm-hmm. uh, and die. You know, mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't forgive four years of bad treatment. Yeah. Because, but he was, you know, he's, he's, he's a very good soul, and he was like, no, this is great. We've, we've won some people over. And my mother loved him, and, um, you know, he won her over. And so they had sort of a journey – you know, they mm-hmm. were these old Republicans, and they, I think as they got older, they kind of realized that, you know, the country was a lot more complicated than the, the world they grew up in, and they had to change a little bit themselves. And yeah. I think I had a lot to do with that without intending to. I just wanted their acceptance, and when I didn't get them, get it, I was pissed. But I think they realized, you know, that, again, they were happy to see me happy, and they knew he was a good guy, and they sort of saw that we were basically like they were, mm-hmm. except that we didn't fight all the time. Maybe they were jealous about that. But, um, but well, it's wonderful that they did accept you. I mean, yeah. they, they, you know, they, people, you know, everyone has their own prejudices. But uh, if you can admit, I have a prejudice and yeah. I need to get over it, that's, you know, a, a, it the, was, the positive yeah, thing. Yeah, it was very interesting. I, I, I was convinced that they knew I was gay. And the only reason I told them is because like, I was convinced they were going to tell me. Mm-hmm. I was convinced they were going to say, you know, you're gay and we know it. And so I, I, it was a preemptive strike, and they both said to me, we had no idea. Hmm. Never discussed it. Not, 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 we had no idea. And it's almost like they suddenly it's – like it, it's like they were confronted with something they never thought about, and they decided to hate it hmm. for no other reason than their sort of kind of prejudices of their friends. Right. And then they slowly realized, you know, we don't really care, you know, which mm-hmm. is kind of how they approached all of us. Most of the time, anyway, they didn't really care. I mean, they loved us, but they didn't really care, you know, mm-hmm. what our day-to-day lives were. They just, you know, they had their own thing going on. Yeah. And I think once they sort of like – I think that's a great way to approach people. You know, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm, I don't hate yeah. you because I don't really care. Right. And right. then, you know, then maybe you'll grow to love them. But, you know, it's sort of like, oh, it's whatever. It's like I get yelled at on BART today. Hmm. This woman said, "I, you know, keep your bike, keep your bike off my fucking pants. Like I bumped into a pants. Keep your bike off my fucking pants. And I was like, what? You know, some folks just need to emote. Just get it out of this system. I know. And then I was just like, you know, I don't, I don't, I really don't care. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to get an argument with you because I yeah. just don't care. I will keep my bike off your pants. Yeah. Let's talk about, uh, before we get into the history of theater, Ryan. Yeah. Um, your, because we've had a series of directors and actors you yeah. talk about their techniques and how they approach theater. As a director, how do you approach, I guess, do you have a method? Do you have a way of working? Well, I, I act in everything I direct, which is sort of like very 19th century and uh, very old school and nobody does it. But I find that if I'm in the middle of it, I'm a much better director than if I'm not. If I'm outside of it, I find myself as a director kind of creating things to say, mm-hmm, mm. giving too many notes or notes that I think are creative or, you know, I just, I find myself working hard to prove that I'm, I, I'm supposed to be there as a director. Um, when I'm in it, mm-hmm. I'm much more perceptive to what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And I never, 
and it's weird. I don't know anybody else like me. Um, I I never feel like um, I'm I'm making stuff up or overthinking stuff. Uh, my anxiety is that I'm underthinking it because I'm in it and my brain is firing so much on acting or on writing and acting mm-hmm. that I'm not getting enough feedback. But I do give feedback. Anybody who's worked with me as an actor will tell me, will, will say he doesn't, he's not, it's just, it's not just vanity. He really wants us all to be good. Mm-hmm. And I do because it, it, it helps me. I mean, Charles Ludlam, who's one of my heroes, he used to direct and act in all of his plays, and he would deliberately cast a bunch of people who were awful because mm-hmm. it made him look better. <laughs> and I never do that. I get the best yeah. actors I can, yeah. and then I give them as much supportive feedback as possible. And I really trust them. Mm-hmm. I, if I'm not seeing what I what I want, I don't say do this, do that. I say try try something differently. Mm-hmm. Try it differently. Just try it differently. Um, I trust their creativity, um, and I rehearse a lot. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. I just – if we run it and run it and run it, we find stuff. We get more comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get to opening night because, you know, there's all those nerves things. But I feel like if we've been through it a bunch of times, mm-hmm. we don't – we'll still be nervous, but we've got a good road – a road map. You know, I'm, you know, that said, I'm also into, you know, dynamic staging and I want things to be big and I want them to be loud. And I, I'm not I, – I, I don't – I'm not the most subtle – um, person aesthetically, I believe in subtlety, but in contrast to sort of a, a frantic energy. Sure. I, you mm-hmm. know, when when there's an argument on stage, I really encourage people to really go at it because mm-hmm. I think that there's this primal thing in all of us that really wants to just have a big old argument. Yeah, I totally believe that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've studied all the people who are the great directors and things like that, and I've I've, I've been inspired by them. Yeah. But what, was Mr. Estes a, a mentor for you? I never met him. He was dead before oh, I even okay. came out of the closet. Okay. He died. Oh, it's so sad. He died like 1981. He's like the like it, 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 if you were in a race to die from AIDS, he mm-hmm. would have. He was one of those people who would have won it. Wow. He died really really early. Um, you know, but uh, he inspires me. Mentally, because yeah. you have this vision. But know. did you have a mentor? Did you have someone that you pat- pattern yourself for? No, I, like I told you, I, I, my mentors—I won't say they failed me. I just what I—I had. Okay, yes. In high school, I had a drama teacher. This is so lame. My high school drama teacher. Okay, <laughs> but here we go. Yeah. I, I had a I had a drama teacher mm-hmm. who just—he was a big old queen and he stood at the back of the theater and he just said louder pick up the pace louder i can't understand anything you're saying yeah and he he you know he believed in truth and mm-hmm. everything being believable but mm-hmm. he also believed in the audience has to hear you and understand what you're saying and he was just uh, he was just like that he was just loud and boisterous and fun and mm-hmm. he would say things that on the on, on, a, on a piece of paper look like vicious and mean, but he would say them in such a way that they were funny and, and loving. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he was my, his name was Joe Wadlington. And if I want to establish my cr- credentials, he also trained Robin Williams. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so he, you know, he, he but he, and that's why I say everything I learned, I learned in high school. After that, art for me, art training for me became very, pretentious. It became about rules and ideas. And, and Brecht, we mentioned Brecht, who mm-hmm. I love, mm-hmm. but it took me a long time to get to loving him because he was presented to me as this master director playwright. And there mm-hmm. was so much crap 
piled on top of him and, yeah. and interpreting him and how he did what he did. It's impossible to figure out how he did what he did. He wrote contradictory things. Mm-hmm. So to present Brecht as this or that, I think I feel now is a lie. What what I love about him is what he wrote and sort of my sense of him as an artist. Mm-hmm. But to get it down to dogma or, or, or a course sure. of, of study, yeah. I find very problematic. We had um, we had um, Alan Coyne. Uh, he's okay. he's a uh, uh, actor who's been around. Uh, we had him on last week, and he had mentioned that he you know there's a learning that you can get in school, and then there's a learning that you just get by just doing, by just yep. acting. I mean, there I I've been, I've either stage managed or uh, you know been a part of. Some good theater companies, some bad theater companies, yeah. and uh, sometimes, you know, the worst productions are the ones that you learn from. Do you find that to be uh, the, the same? Yeah, I really do believe in in, in working and in, in always doing stuff. Uh, always, uh, I know it's harder to act when I've stopped acting for a long time. Mm-hmm. I really believe in one project after another. Um, I... I have learned a lot from from putting on bad shows, and um, I've learned a lot from that. And and uh, I can't say I, I I rarely see shows I think are bad, so I take some solace from that. Maybe the things I think that I've done that have been horrible, maybe they weren't that bad. Mm-hmm. You know, because when you're in the middle of it and doing yeah. it night after night, it <laughs> feels horrible. It's like, oh my god, are we going to do this thing again? <laughs> right. But I think the audience's experience is, is somewhat different. They're seeing it for the first time and they're not quite as hypercritical. And But um, I think that uh, um, yeah, I, yes, I, I think you learn from doing. I really do. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you change as an artist. And uh, like I said, I mean, I used to do a lot of directing. All, the, all I did was direct, and I just I found myself getting bored, and 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 so I started I started putting myself on stage because what I always loved to do was act, mm-hmm. and uh, that really I think uh, helped me. It helped me help other people a lot more. And also, I lead from the front. I don't have to listen to people whine about well, I have all these lines to learn, or I, I've, well, I <laughs> so do I. Right, exactly. I, I mean, mean I can't, you, you're right in the mix, right? I'm along right in with the mix. Them. It's like, well, I'm sorry, I'm half hour late. I just well, so do I. I mean, you know, it's like I can't. You know, I, I like lead from the front. I lead from the saddle. Mm-hmm. Um, like Henry V. I, you know, I'm not the king. You know, I'm like. And I have armor. I have a sword. I'm out there with you too. Yeah. But I think he's right. Uh, what he said um, that uh, you know it's a, it's it, it, it's not something you learn in the classroom. It's it's not. It's mm-hmm. like combat. It's like you go to West Point, great, and then you get out in the field, and mm-hmm. it's like oh, there's this thing they never taught us about, which is the enemy, mm-hmm. which is not going to do what. We want it to do or what right. we've been trained. I mean, the enemy is going to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the audience. I always say the audience is always right. Yeah. If they want to fall asleep, they get to fall asleep. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. If they want to snore, they get to snore. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you just have to, you know, you might just have to talk louder and wake them up or drop <laughs> something on the stage. Um, but he's right. It's, yeah. it's really the theater of experience. I, I, we had Susan Evans on, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, she, she had talked about. Her experience as a director, she talked about being an actor as well, and she was in one um, play, I think it was called Happy Days, where she was buried in sand, and she was like, okay, that's it, I'm not going to act anymore. (laughs) But she mentioned as a director, she'll choose pieces, and she's making a statement by the pieces that she selects. 
And she talked about, you know, like having some successes because she wants to see how does the audience react to the piece that's being produced? Are they getting it? And sometimes she'll mention, I guess, mistakes. Like, you know, I mentioned a production that I was in uh, that she directed called Bedbug. Yeah. And she mentioned that it was a, a mistake. And it, it just occurred to me, as a director and even as a producer, you're even if you're not on stage, you're making a statement. I'm sure there have been times where you have made statements, and sometimes the audience gets it, sometimes they don't. Have you had experiences? Um, I don't know if I'm being too no, abstract. No, I, mean, I you know, I, I, I put on a play about the California Holocaust where um, the Indians of California were – um, deliberately killed off, hmm, yeah. and nobody really knew about this. Um, I think we know about the Plains Indians and, and tribes back east, mm-hmm. but the point of the play was that it happened here. We can't think about, you know, these horrible things that happened to the Iroquois or the the Sioux Indians. We we have to own up to it as Californians because it happened right here in the Bay Area, and um, a lot of members of the audience who were. Um, Indigenous peoples um, were totally offended, completely mm. offended. Wow! They thought it was much too violent. They thought it was. They thought it was outrageous. They mm. thought it was like living through the Holocaust again, and the, it, it, it excited this whole sort of debate about what was appropriate. And also, you know, I'm not an indigenous person. That is not my background. And do I have the right to tell this story? And um. I was really struck by that because for me, I was like telling a story that people like me didn't know. People like me, until I read about all the stuff, did not know that the California Indians were deliberately exterminated. They were deliberately destroyed. Mm -hmm. Well, indigenous peoples knew this, but I was not necessarily doing the play for them. I was doing it for people like me who didn't know the story. Sure. in a way, and I won't say it was wrong or I shouldn't have done it because I think a lot of people did say, they said, well, I didn't know this. I didn't know all this. Yeah. I mean, um, maybe the extremity of the production um, excited, uh, maybe it should have been so extreme, but that's just my aesthetic. I'm like, if I, if I put the Holocaust on stage, it's not going to be. I get very frustrated with plays which are about something horrible, and the actors are like, oh my God, this horrible thing happened. Off stage, you know, mm-hmm. this horrible thing happened over there. I'm like, I put it in front of the audience. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's 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 a constant dilemma. You know, you yeah. have to take responsibility for what you do <clears throat> on stage. Mm-hmm. But does that necessarily mean that it was wrong to do it if people are upset by it? Yeah. Well, I imagine it's better to, you know, I had an actor teacher say, if you're going to make a mistake, make it big. Or, you know, yeah. if, if, if people will interpret it as a mistake, it may not even be a mistake. If people get an adverse reaction to it, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they should have a reaction to it. Well, I think it starts a dialogue, and that's definitely what that production did. It started – first there was a lot of just anger, and mm-hmm. then people started talking and listening to each other. And I think we all – I think we all learned a lot from the experience, and it, it brought – people of very different backgrounds together to talk about something. And I think that's true. I mean, I think you're, you're yeah, if you're going to make a mistake, make it deliberate, make it, you know, d- d- don't, don't out of laziness or because you weren't really aware of what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Or know. out of cautiousness, don't do it at all. Yeah. And I think that that's, that, that for me was my arts education was like, you have to be very careful with art. And I'm like, what, why does art have to be very careful? I mean, politics has to be very careful. You know, the military has to be very careful. You know, the airlines have to be very careful. Right. I mean, you know, because people will die. Right. You know, arts, I think, is the one thing that 
Yeah, you're not going to kill anybody with you're a play. You're not going to kill anybody with a play. And it's it's sort of like um, maybe the alt-right should put on some plays <laughs> instead of marching <laughs> and screaming hate. You know, yeah. and then and then and then you can do what audiences are entitled to do. You can get up and walk out. Mm-hmm. You can leave. I walk out of plays all the time. I can never understand people saying I was so offended. I was offended for three hours. I was offended. It was like, why didn't you leave after half an hour? <laughs> I mean, right. and um, and I think there's something in that regard. Arts allows the audience to look away. Mm-hmm. If you go to a museum and you don't like what you're seeing, you can leave, <coughs> or you can move on to the next painting. Um, politics, you can't. Or, you know, as I said, the airlines, if they build a bad plane, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you can't, like, get <laughs> off the plane. Oh, the plane's crashing. I want to yeah. get off. Can I get off? Yeah. I don't want to crash. You know, it's no, you have to sit in your seat and die like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So. But, I mean, in politics, there's a duty. I mean, you know, yeah. for people who choose to be a politician, you choose to serve the people. And when I think about Theodore Rhino. Yeah. It's not just hey, let's do a play, no. but it's doing a service. It is to doing a service. Who needs, who needs but I it. think it's also laying down a challenge. I think that um, a play I didn't do last year was a play about um, a group of transvestites, and um, it was it was kind of critical of these guys and their kind of limited view mm-hmm. of um, what it is to be a woman. Um, and it, and it, it was a fun. It wasn't. It wasn't heavily political, but it, mm-hmm. it, it, there was an element of criticism. And I didn't do the play because I thought after Trump got elected that there was already too much kind of hate being directed at the queer community. I didn't want to participate. Not that the play was hateful, but I didn't want to participate in anything that was critical of the queer community at that moment. Right. But I do feel like um, a minority theater has a responsibility to not just promote the minority, but also to question it at times mm-hmm. and question its assumptions. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's yeah, – politicians, uh, you know, I, I think they've gotten away from giving the public what they should have mm-hmm. uh, to giving the public exactly what they want at that moment yeah. or worse, you know, yeah. what, big bi- what big businessmen want yeah. the public to have. But I think you're right. I, but I think that that responsibility to your audience, to your minority audience, extends to, at times, criticizing them yeah. from the inside. Well, I guess keeping making making sure they're honest yes. about themselves. Yes, or uh, uh, that there's some. And, and of course, I think comedy is the best tool because you know it's it's not comedy allows us to laugh at things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I think that that's the wonderful thing about comedy that it it, it can have a bite. But essentially, it's it's meant to entertain. I think theater. I think no matter what kind of theater we put on, it should entertain. Of course, of when course. It, when it stops entertaining, and that was unfortunately my theater training was these incredibly dour plays. You yeah. Know, that were. Not, I mean, it was like fine. Let's do Beckett, but can it be fun? <laughs> let's do this awful Shakespeare play, but can it be fun? Can't we at least talk fast? Yeah. Another another thing we talked about on, on another podcast was sort of how. So many theater teachers look at the technique or their way of doing theater as sort of a almost a cult. Like, hey, this is the way you do it. If yeah. You do it another way, and we sort of laughed about that because it's just ridiculous. I mean, you know, take what is useful for you and yeah. put away anything that isn't. Well, I had the experience this summer teaching. I teach at ACT, and um, you know, I was I was teaching my class, and uh, I'm a very 
present teacher. I mm-hmm. was very involved, and it wasn't it wasn't working. They weren't responding. They mm. were getting kind of I don't know. They were getting kind of overwhelmed, and I empowered them more than any other class I've taught to teach the class to talk to each other and really sort of structure the way they would approach the material. Mm-hmm. And we ended up with our final presentation with one of the best products I've ever had. In other words, I think when a teacher gets so wrapped up in his own dogma um, that he can't adjust to what's going on in the room, then he's just a fascist. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of stopped myself from becoming a fascist. I just realized, you know, well, you know, I might win this battle, but mm-hmm. it's, the teaching's not about winning. It's not about converting. It's about, you know, you, you know, you, you give them what you have to give, mm-hmm. and hopefully they take it. But if they're really not responding, how can you utilize their resources to get to the same place in a different way? Mm-hmm. And I, I was actually ended up very proud of the work, and I think I got to where I wanted to get with them. But it required them to sort of help me yeah, because they weren't necessarily – following yeah do you um, think there's a <clears throat> excuse me do you think it was a generational thing i mean even as a director now like yeah. i'm sure like when you're at theater rhino yeah. there are tons of new people like um yeah. aj mitchell who directed uh the musical uh, yeah. i think yeah so and actually he'll be directing my musical uh in the in the fall oh he's directing a show for us right now yeah no he's fantastic but is it how difficult or maybe easy is it for you to connect to a newer generation and i'm sure you've had to go through this through the years um, AJ choreographed Priscilla. I directed it. He choreographed okay, it. Okay, yeah. And um, it was amazing. He, I, I really, I, 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 I liked AJ, and I'd had him in a show, and I saw his choreography. So I'd never worked with him before, and mm-hmm. just it was that was easy. Mm-hmm. I saw him choreograph these numbers, and he, he's very prickly. He's very demanding. If there's a, if there's a, if there's a conflict with a performer. He's got to win. He's got to establish authority, mm-hmm. and it all works. Mm-hmm. In other words, I, I, for me, it was easy. It was easy to surrender, surrender mm-hmm. power, control, whatever to him. I mean, mm-hmm. that show was as much his show, if not more, than mine. Um, he choreographed dance number after dance number after dance. I mean, it's like there was like twenty four <laughs> dance numbers in this. Wow. The, the cast was dancing like animals. Uh-huh. They were exhausted. Yeah. And he banged out those dance numbers. And I, I when it, when somebody has that much energy and mm-hmm. is so clear on what they want to do, yeah. I I just any sort of any sort of thing about power and control on my part evaporates. I didn't. I all I wanted to do was give him time, and we had. Endless discussions about time. He needed more time. I needed to give him more time. But that wasn't a conflict. I wanted to have it because mm-hmm. I, you know, so I have no problem with another generation if I see that kind of diligence. Of course, energy. the focus and the drive, yeah, of course. If yeah, if I see, if I sense that some sort of idea about theater is a mask for laziness or just a lack of rigor or mm-hmm. just not really having an idea but pretending like you do, I, I have no patience. But you know, AJ is AJ is amazing. He's that I'm so glad you brought him up. He's he's uh, he's got so much um, energy and drive, and he really knows what he wants. And and I I I stood between him and a dancer yelling in each other's face. I mean, I've wow! Never, I've never been 
and, 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 you know, I don't want to say it was fine, but I was like, I really, I understood both positions, and I knew they had to work it out, mm-hmm. and it ended up fine. Mm-hmm. It seemed like, you know, a, a bad situation, but I, I, I realized that they, they needed to do it, and I had nothing to do with it. I, I didn't start it. I didn't fuel it. Mm-hmm. I just sort of stood between them, and I was like, come on, guys, come on, guys, come on. Yeah. And eventually they calmed down, they worked it out, and it was great. Yeah. And that's just that's just the process. Yeah, I, I worked with him. Uh, well, I saw him dance. Uh, we were both in 110 in the Shade at the Douglas Morrison Theater, uh-huh. and he did a fantastic job. He actually had an ankle injury, and I think he came back from the injury and continued to dance. But you could tell his drive. Oh, his dancing's amazing. Yeah. He, he it's just like, I, he's like a fire plug. He's just like, <laughs> I can't believe his dancing. Yeah. And, um, and that's, and that again for me is, it's like, again, leading from the front. He's got people doing things mm-hmm. that he can, he can ace himself. Yeah. And he's really great at like, okay, you can do this. So you're going to dance. You're going to mm-hmm. dance more. You're going right. to dance a little bit less. Because he can do it all. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of the state of theater in the Bay Area now? Do you think that uh, we've been talking about how a lot of the younger generation, um, not I'm not picking on millennials, you know, you can sure. see any criticisms on yep. Facebook yep. or whatever, but a lot of folks would rather watch YouTube than watch television or go to the movies or even go to a live theater. Mm-hmm. Um, it has it been a struggle for theater rhino um, to, to bring people in Uh in, in, in the seats. Well, I mean, I think if you put on something that's perceived as good, they, they, they'll, they'll, they'll come in droves. I mean, they, you know, if we put on a show that they love, they, they turn out. I mean, it's, it's, it's no problem. I think that uh, all of us, uh, Susan might have talked about this. I mean, we, 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 we want to put on, we don't necessarily want to put on crowd pleasers all the time. We mm-hmm. want to put on things that are entertaining, but we want also to challenge the audience. And that's when it gets a little tough. You you put on a good show. You're proud of it. You know you've you've done this kind of difficult material as good as possible, mm-hmm. and you know the audiences don't turn out because it's not, you know, it's not a musical or it's not a comedy or it's not, uh, you know, it's not completely life affirming. It's challenging. So I don't know. You try and strike a balance. You try and do those shows that are going to bring the audience mm-hmm. in. You know. But it sounds like Theater Rona has not had a problem with that. Like a lot, a lot of theater companies, they, they may say, "Oh, well." We're going to put on this great show, but it's still hard to bring people in. Maybe it's not so hard for Theaterano because there's history behind it. Well, the, we, we, have a, we have a lot of very loyal people who mm-hmm. turn out, and um, they're, you know, they're very supportive. But, you know, no, I see it. We, we put on shows, and I can see that there's you know, not as many people in the audience as the last show. And, uh, you know, I see that. I, I try not to run the theater like a Hollywood studio, like – you know, I try not to look at things as like, you know, well, everything's got to be a hit. <laughs> and yeah. if it's not a hit, heads will roll. <laughs> we have advertisers. We yeah. Have, you know, we have to, you know, it's a nonprofit. You're theater. not Louis B. Mayer. I'm not Louis B. Mayer. I mean, you know, sometimes I wish I was. Sometimes I wish I was <laughs> just, you know, I just had those sorts of resources. But again, I think it's our job to give, give the polity what they need as opposed to what they want. If they, want, it, 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 if they want something, they should go to Best of Broadway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think theater in the Bay Area aspires to a certain intelligence. And I see things at all the theaters that I think are incredibly complicated and intelligent and historical and challenging. I mean, this is sort of amazing. And, you know, I 
go to other cities, and I don't see as much. Hmm. Cities as big as San Francisco, I just don't see as much, or it yeah. doesn't last. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's too bad that some of the local theater companies with minority identities have struggled over the last few years. The Asian American Theater Company, the Lorraine Hansberry Theater Company, yeah. the Jewish Theater, the mm-hmm. Traveling Jewish Theater. I mean, a lot of them have disappeared. Yeah. Um, some of them are just sort of hanging on by their fingernails. Mm-hmm. I think that that's too bad because I think – I just think that that's important that there are these identity theaters out there. People say, oh, well, we don't need that anymore because now now uh, the big theater companies are doing shows about African-Americans or the big theater companies are doing shows about gay mm-hmm. people. Well, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need to – and I'm like, well, but that's – that's the main not the it's not the main street, but that's that's like the the majority putting on a show about a minority mm-hmm. as opposed to a minority putting on a show about a minority. And I was very proud of one critic who came and saw Priscilla and said and there were two other shows about transgenders being done at the same time mm-hmm. and the critics said, you know, there's something about a gay theater putting on a gay subject that resonates. I just felt a difference watching Priscilla and watch watching this gay theater putting on a show about transgenders mm-hmm. and these three gay actors playing transgenders. I just felt the difference. Yeah. And I, it's like, I would never even say that, but it's sort of, I think something resonates. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a family telling its own story. Yeah. Um, you know, so I I, I, I I think, you know, whatever, Bay Area Theater. I mean, sometimes I think it's too small and, and you know, it's, there's just not enough going on and people mm-hmm. don't take it seriously and everybody goes to New York and blah, blah, blah. But when I think about – when I just think about the choices of plays, I'm not necessarily talking about the success of the choices. Mm-hmm. But when getting back to what Susan said, just the choices of the plays mm-hmm. in the Bay Area are very political and very challenging. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying, you know – that they necessarily succeed, but just to say I'm going to do this play or I'm going to do a brand new play on this subject, I'm always impressed. Mm-hmm. When I look at the rosters of plays that the theater companies are doing, I'm always like, wow, okay, that's it's a very challenging season. Yeah, yeah, you know? and and I find that you know, especially with you know the political climate now, more you know, I think more companies are doing these uh, challenging uh, yeah. plays. Well, and I think that that's, I mean, uh, there is one theater company which will go unmentioned, which has drifted from doing those kinds of works and is now drifting more and more to doing musicals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think – and that's the exception. I think that that is not – it's – we don't need more musicals. <laughs> I mean – Right. I mean um, – and there are some great challenging musicals out there, but by and large, mm-hmm. um, musicals tend to be – Entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. Right. You know, content maybe mm-hmm. a distant fourth place. Yeah. I just feel that that's the that is the wrong direction. But that is an exception, and I think it's it's driven by this horrible thing, of course, which is paying the bills. Yeah, that's unfortunate, and yeah. I, I think I may know the uh, the company. It, it needs not be named, yeah. but some companies, you know, feel well. Hey, do I make a message or do I pay the bills? And unfortunately, they you know they take the, that uh, challenge, but. Um, but Theater Rhino is rare that it can both do both. It can still pay the bills. Well, just barely. I mean, we're not – yeah, we're not – we could be richer. <laughs> um, we could be a richer company. Mm-hmm. We could – you know, we finally have a permanent home, the Gateway Theater, formerly the Eureka. Mm-hmm. We could be richer. 
you know, I, you know, we could, we could be richer. Are you, are you enjoying the Eureka? Um, I, I, it, it shocked me that because I remember Theodore Rhino used to be yeah. on the first floor, and the second floor was uh, Teatro della Speranza. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's where you did a show about um, Richard Wright. Richard Wright in Paris. That's yeah, right. you and Norman. Yeah. Um, Do you, so, are you enjoying the Eureka? Yeah, I mean, the the Redstone Building was. It's a great building with a lot of history. That that neighborhood is just blighted. Yeah. It's a very challenging neighborhood. And people talk about how the mission has bounced back. That part of the mission has not. Mm-hmm. And well, not yet. Let's let's hope. Let's hope. Um, you know, uh, the theater-going audience is aging, and we just found that too many of our audience members didn't feel comfortable coming down there. Mm. And I would walk people to BART's yeah. after the show. Not yeah. because I thought there was any real danger, but – there's a perception of danger. And yeah. It was that – I mean, all those theaters have shut down. There's another theater over there now, Mojo Theater. Mm-hmm. But the other theater, Lunacy, Teatro de Esperanza, Theater mm-hmm. Rhino have all left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that building was just – it was it – was, it, it's too bad. But yeah. It, it should be, like, transported to, like, two blocks away in any direction. Yeah, I – you know, I, I hope that the exit theater sticks around. The exit theater is in the Tenderloin. That's and true, I wonder yeah. – you know, I've, I've had people say, "Wow, it's a great show," but I gotta hurry up and get home because. But and, you know, it's so it's it's ridiculous. I grew up going to theater in New York in the seventies, and it was like, you know, you had to fight your way into the theater. It's like you had to like, you know, you had to, yeah. like, you know, it's like, and so for me, it's like big deal. It's right. theater should be in a lousy neighborhood. There should be a porn theater right next door and a bunch <laughs> of right. drunks throwing up on the sidewalk. That's what theater is. That, that's where the action is. But yeah. now you go to New York, and it's like it's like Disneyland. I mean, that has been erased. And yeah, so, I, I went to school at uh, NYU around that time during the late eighties, nineties, oh, okay. during the time of. Yusuf Hawkins and the Central Park Jogger case and all That's that right, stuff. That's right, yeah. And, yeah, there were uh, porn shops, you know, everywhere, and yeah. it was totally unclean. This the, Central was, this Park, the Central Park Jogger, a hoax. Yeah, a exactly. To- a total bullshit. Exactly. I mean, that's what I'm saying. There's a perception of danger mm-hmm. in, in that part of the mission, and it's not actual. I worked there for a theater rhinoceros. I worked there for, you know, um, uh, a decade, and mm-hmm. nothing ever happened to me. And I'm the most boring middle class guy ever. I'm, I'm like, if, if anybody's going to get mugged or knifed, to be me. But nobody, nobody even noticed me. They were like bored. Mm-hmm. I was like, that guy's not going to, he's not going to buy drugs. Leave him alone. Yeah. Um, so, uh, or he is going to buy drugs. Leave him alone. But, um, so, but there is that perception. And as people get older, they get more concerned about things. And that's, that's too bad. I mean, I think, uh, I hope what happened to New York doesn't happen to San Francisco where the tender one gets erased. Mm-hmm. Because we just can't deal with these disgusting people. It's like, who cares? That's what city, cities are for people who don't fit in anywhere else. And it's not just gay. It Sometimes it means drugs. Sometimes mm-hmm. it means ex-cons. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, you know, I don't like somebody throwing up on me. But, you know, I feel like if we just erase um, the tenderloin or the mission, mm-hmm. the way New York is erasing its neighborhoods – you know, we're going to end up with a very boring city. Yeah, and it's just going to push people away. I mean, I've, I've had some acting friends say, I can't afford to stay here exactly. anymore. It's, it's, this, it's true. More and more, it's getting harder and harder to cast plays. Yeah. Because um, doing theater is, is it's, a, it's an avocation. It's mm. like you can't, it's very hard for actors to make money off of it. So yeah. they have to have other jobs, and they can't get a job that's good enough, and, and and actors are coming from farther and farther away. When we did The Brothers' Size, the actors were coming from, like, Antioch. Wow. It took them, like, 
hours to get into the city and out. It was just like, and I just, yeah, this this new economy is 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 wonderful, but to some extent, it's gonna it's gonna make being an artist, which is defined by being poor. I mean, mm-hmm. a poor artist that those two words go together in America. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're gonna lose everybody to I don't know Texas or something where. You know, everybody can live cheap because nobody no, wants to live there. Not. Yeah, yeah. I've had some friends uh, move to Austin and then other places yeah. and start up theater companies or whatever. But my God, I would just, I would just hate to do that. <laughs> I would. Yeah, I just. I you know, it's like I. I yeah, San Francisco's the best, but yeah. it's. Yeah, for a long time it was it was uh, it was it was affordable, and now it's not. I mean, I've got rent control. We got rent control from 1987. I mean, you know. Oh, you yeah. guys are doing great. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, otherwise I'd have to, you know, move to some horrifying place like Oregon. Or, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just I couldn't. It's uh, you know whatever whatever yeah. whatever. So we've hit the one hour mark. Uh, oh my goodness! <laughs> oh yeah, time goes by when you're having blah, fun. Blah blah blah. So uh, and I, I know you're biking, so I don't want to keep you uh, too late. Any any uh, what what do you want to plug? Uh, we're doing this great new play called The Legend of Pink by Kevin Legrone, and it's set in West Oakland. So it's a local story. It's a brand new play, and it's all about how West Oakland has changed, and it's mm-hmm. about this. Um, I've got the website up right here. Yeah, it's about this um, drag queen in 1989, and uh, he's you know he's he's part of the West Oakland community. He's surrounded by drugs and violence, but you know he's uh, he's it's where he belongs, and he gets involved with a guy who's inappropriate and sort of excites this neighborhood and gets the police involved, and as a result, um, somebody gets killed. It's a comedy, but it gets very dark. Mm-hmm. And it really is about how West Oakland changed. Um, I've been riding my bike around there forever, and it's true. I mean, there now there's condos. Now there's you know, people are buying those cute little houses. Mm-hmm. And it's a neighborhood that um, was very unique and very specific and had its own kind of identity, which was uh, very much um, – uh, you know, uh, an identity wrapped up with a certain minority. And I think we have ideas about people who lived in West Oakland, but this play is really about how there was great diversity in that community in terms of sexuality, which is going to be surprising to people. But it's also about how that, that neighborhood is dying. Mm. It's, being, it's being bought out. It is too close to San Francisco. It's too valuable. Mm-hmm. It's on BART. And I think a neighborhood that we think was always – always going to belong to a certain community is now being very quickly bought out. Wow. And, um, so by the end of the play, the, the neighborhood is changed radically and the characters come back to revisit it and they see that you know, West Oakland is, 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 is being yuppified. Yeah. So it's sort of sad, but I, what I love about it is it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful play. It's, it's very funny. It's very charming. It's very sexy. But it's also a local story, which we I think so often the stories we get are from New York or London, you know. Right, exactly. Which is where so much theater <clears throat> comes from. And this is a local local author who's never had his play produced before. Mm-hmm. And um, Kevin Lagrone. Kevin Lagrone, and um, it starts on September fifteenth. AJ Mitchell is directing it. That's right. I'm, I'm looking job. at it right now. Yeah, yeah doing a beautiful job. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a great cast. So that's the first play of our season. I'm very proud of it. Mm-hmm. Unlike Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, it's not a musical. It's not something that's been done anywhere before. It's 
It's uh, it's it's a play, and it's 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 just got a wonderful soul. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm very very proud of it, and the people who are putting it on. Kevin's a wonderful writer. His inspiration, he's African American, but his inspiration is Tennessee Williams, and he didn't want to put any. He didn't want to put the F word in it. He said, I I don't I don't like the F word. There's going to be no F word. Hmm, okay. And I said I said, well, I think in this scene you can use the F word if you want. He said, no no no, my hero is Tennessee Williams. I said, Tennessee Williams used the F word. He said, no. Yeah. I said, yes, he did. We put on a show of his, and one character called says, fuck you, you, fuck you, you bitch. I said, no. And I said, yes, he did. And Kevin was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and I, I, but that's what, I, that's what I, I, I immediately thought about the play. It sounds like Williams, the way people talk, the way people connect with each other. Interesting, yeah. It sounds like Williams. Mm-hmm. And so he's ingested that, but he's made it very local and very much his own. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, so that's September the 15th through the 30th at the Eureka Theater, The Legend of Pink. That's right. And, uh, yeah, this is uh, the 40th season of Theater Rhino. This is our 40th anniversary. That, that's just amazing. Yeah. And still rolling strong. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And, actually, I'm, I've got a couple of shout-outs as well. So I've mentioned Trans Voices. If you want to give a donation to the uh, Transgendered American Veterans Association, we'll have a link for that. Also, um, the San Francisco Olympians Festival, they're having the um, auditions for the San Francisco Olympians. That's August 27th, which is uh, this weekend. Uh, Yeah, 27th and 28th. That'll be at the Exit Theater. Also, Arsenic and Old Lace. uh, That's being directed by Dale Albright. Love it. You know Dale. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, that's at the, uh, the DMT, the Douglas Morrison Theater. Best play ever. Arsenic and Olay, yeah, yeah it's, it's an Olay but goody. Yeah. <laughs> and also, Bindlestiff Studios is doing Stories High 17. I was in 14 and 15. <laughs> uh, Bindlestiff Studios, they're a fantastic Philippine yeah. uh, company, and that's opening August the 31st through September the 16th. And uh, speaking of Bindlestiff, uh, Patrick Silvestri, uh, a good actor and writer, he is, uh, it's his birthday, so I want to wish him happy birthday. Happy birthday. And uh, that's it. Hope you had fun, John. Hey, great time, Brad. Thank you so much. Fan- it was a pleasure. Fantastic. And maybe we'll get you on again so that our Norman can ask you a question. He really, really wanted to be here, but we I just know. couldn't, you know, Norman, work it out. Norman's, Norman's my man. I, I, I studied acting with him with the great Mark Epstein, who was, I was dissing all my teachers, but I, Mark Epstein was the best acting teacher ever, and I share that with Norman. Ah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. And many, many years ago, what, uh, 15, 18 years ago? Oh, please. <laughs> a lot more than that. Ah. A lot more than that, you know, but we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> And that is it. Oh, let me give you my little blurb on The Yay, this uh, wonderful podcast. So you can find The Yay. Uh, well, of course, you've already found it, but you can tell <laughs> your friends. You can find it on the Apple uh, Podcast app. And uh, if you are a traditionalist, you uh, listen to podcasts on your desktop or laptop and not a phone, you can find it on the SoundCloud app. Just go to SoundCloud.com. And if you're an Android user, just download the SoundCloud app, and you can listen to it on there. Just search for The Yay. That's it. And we are out.